0: my name is Mark. For those of you who don't know me, uh, I used to, to speak every now and then here pre-COVID. It's been a hot minute. Because I'm back, I guess that means that COVID is over. You're welcome. Uh, Tyler's asked me to close this series. It's such an honor, a series on prayer. And I love what he said last week about prayer, that he's, he's asking us to turn up the temperature on our prayer lives, And you have, like in a big way, you've responded to this series more than what we expected you would. And I think it's because that you get it. You understand that after what our nation has been through, God is ready to break through in new ways. And for us to be prepared to receive all that he's going to blow by us, the blessings We need to be postured in prayer to see what he's doing, expect what's coming, and to receive it from the Lord. So I think that's why you've been so in in tune with this series on prayer. And Tyler's asked me to conclude the series talking about praying for the lost. And I I probably shouldn't do this, but that's a bad idea. Yeah. No, hear me out. It's a bad idea because... It's gonna to cost to pray for the lost. Like if you prayed for uh, one of the titles of the series, you're praying praise and adoration. When you adore God in prayer, when you praise God in prayer, what does that cost you? A conversation. Like that's all it costs you. Because you're not gonna change who God is. Yeah, and there's really no follow-up for you after you praise God. You pray for healing. Jason preached a good sermon on that. Pray for healing. What does it cost you? A conversation. Like you, you can't heal yourself, so like how are you going to add to that prayer? You see what I'm saying? You pray for healing, and you might even get a blessing. So there's way more upside than cost-ratio-benefit. You pray for prayers that change history. That was a wonderful sermon. You pray for prayers that change history. How much history can you personally change? Well, a little, some. Look, so there's some cost to you, but not a lot. It costs a conversation. You start praying for the lost, what's it going to cost you? Yeah, this is an interesting prayer because if you track the prayers in the New Testament where, where Jesus asked you, pray for the lost, pray for the lost, in each one, guess who answers that prayer? You. I mean, God helps, obviously. He's the driver of it. I don't mean to say that God's not involved at all. He's the dominant driver. But if you pray for the lost, God will use you to help him answer your prayer. That's why I say it's a bad idea. If, if you're a sideline Christian, and some of you are, that's okay, we're not critical, but some of you, like Christianity, needs to stay on the weekend. You Go to church, sing some songs, maybe throw a 20 in the offering, that's it. If you want to keep your Christianity to the weekend, praying for the loss is a bad idea because it will cost you time and investment. And I just want to give you fair warning that if you decide to go against this advice and go ahead and pray for the lost, I want to track what it will cost you through the New Testament. You with me? Four prayers, the four costs you will pay, and a little bit of advice for those of you, like some of you, I know you're just bulldogs and you're like in it to win it and you're going to go all in for Christ and all that stuff. Okay, I get it. But if that's you, I want to give you some advice on how to be effective in praying for the lost. So the first prayer, four prayers. First prayer is the first thing that Jesus ever asked us to pray about. Anyone know? First prayer. And I'll tell you this. My estimation, this is the most offensive thing that Jesus ever said. Don't be offended that I said Jesus was offensive. Like everyone was offended by him. His friends, his enemies, his family. Like everyone was offended by him. So don't be offended when I say he said something offensive. This offense Everybody, when Jesus said it, they're going, are you kidding me? Serious? Matthew chapter five, Jesus says, first time he asked you to pray for anything, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. First thing Jesus asked you to pray for. Now I need to remind you that their enemies, not like ours, ours are halfway around the world. Theirs were on top of them. Israel was an occupied territory when Jesus said this. The Romans were right there. They were in the neighborhood. They, they were in the village, dominated, taking control and taking taxes and, 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 and taking people. The, it was, your enemy was really close. We call them terrorists. The Middle East terrorists, that should sound somewhat familiar, right? These guys were enemies in their village, and when Jesus says love them, he's not asking you to like them. You can't control your enemies. If I'm, to be honest, there's some people I just don't like. Sorry, it's me. You too? Yeah, we get it. There are people we don't like. We're still commanded to love them. Love is not an emotion you feel in Jesus' vernacular. Love is what you do. And you look at what God does for his enemies the next verse says, He sends rain. He sends, he sends rain on the good and the bad, he sends sun on the righteous and the unrighteous. He is asking us to love as indiscriminately as God loves, to love your enemy. And that will cost you. And I think, honestly, because we're the Love the Ville church, you get this more than most churches get it. Because when you start actually doing things for the other, You cross the tracks, you cross a divide, you go to the other political party. When you start crossing over, it doesn't just cost you, it will cost friendships, it will cost family members, You think about it, if you're a Jew hearing Jesus say, love your enemies, and a Roman's your enemy, and you start loving the enemy in a practical way, you feed them when they're hungry, you clothe them when they're naked, you visit them when they're all alone, you start doing that, and you will lose some family members because you are harboring a terrorist. And some of you have crossed a line with Love the Ville. Some of the people you work for say, why would you do that? Some of your family members like, you, you're sacrificing what should be ours for the other. You get the cost. is more than just a personal cost to you, it costs your family, so that's why I'm saying it's a bad idea to pray for the lost if you want to be a sideline Christian. So why would anybody pray for the lost when you know it's gonna cost? Well, for those of you hardliners, here's what Jesus said, not me, this is Jesus. So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. That's the explanation. I don't know how badly you want to be a child of God, but you know what what they say, fight like father, like son. You have the character of your father. I don't know how badly you want the character of your father, but if you do, it will cost. It cost Jesus. I mean, he was the ultimate son of God, right? Did Jesus pay the cost for his enemies? Absolutely. In fact, let's fast forward to an incident the last week of Jesus' life. Monday, it was. He goes into the temple, starts throwing tables around, chasing out the money lenders in the temple. What made him angry? Because Jesus didn't, like, blow his cool a lot, but he's just, he is uncorked right now. And then everyone's got like, why is he so mad? He tells you by quoting a scripture that triggered him. Mark chapter 11, verse 17. He was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. That's what triggered him. He's quoting Isaiah 56, 7. Interestingly, all four evangelists tell the same story. Matthew tells the story. But Matthew does not include that phrase for all the nations. It just says, my house will be called a house of prayer. Matthew does not mention all the nations. Luke, who's a Gentile, he's, he's from the other nations. He doesn't mention all the nations. John, same story, he doesn't mention all the nations. Mark is the only one to mention this phrase, all the nations. So you need to fact check him to see, is he just making stuff up? Did he get the quote right? You go back to Isaiah 56, seven, sure enough, that phrase for all the nations is in there. God never intended his temple to be only for the Jews. He intended it to be for all the nations and that's what triggered Jesus. My question for you is, why did Mark notice it when nobody else did? Because if you're gonna pray this prayer, you need to notice the other. How did he do that? Do any of you know where Mark was when he wrote his book. He was actually living in Rome. Peter had gone to preach there and he was following Peter around, writing down what Peter said. When you live among the Romans, it's harder to call them your enemies. Because when you live among the other, you begin to see their heartbeat is the same as yours. Their fears, their dreams, their desires, they're not so different than you when you live with someone. When you remove the gap of distance, you begin to see the other eyeball to eyeball. Some of you have noticed that when you go out to love the ville, that those who are supposedly so different than you—maybe a different political party, or a different neighborhood, or a different economic bracket—they're still the same human desires and drives as you. And when you see the other in a mirror, then you can love them authentically and pray for their salvation. So here's my advice. I'm not not telling you to pray for your enemies because that's a dangerous prayer. But if you decide that you're not comfortable just keeping Christianity on the weekend, you're not comfortable being a sideline Christian, and here's my advice to you, live with the other. You have to do life with the lost if you're going to authentically pray for them. Now, here's the problem with that. I hear you agreeing with me, Go, yep, yep, live with the lost, live with the lost. Do you know how hard that is? statistically, 95% of Christians who have been Christians for over five years have zero non-Christian friends. Now, you might know a neighbor who doesn't go to church. You might have someone at work that they don't love the Lord. But do you do life with them? 95% of you, if you've been a Christian for five years or more, have no real relationships with lost people. How are you going to pray for someone that you're not doing life with? So here's the first cost for you. You have to do life with the lost in order to pray authentically and effectively for them. Are you willing to pay that price? If you're not, this is a a dangerous prayer for you. Prayer number two, and this oddly is the second thing that Jesus ever asked anyone to pray for, and that is workers for the harvest field. I'm gonna read Luke's version of it. And he said, that's Jesus. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest field. Now, remember I mentioned earlier that when you pray for the lost, the cost is that God asks you to be a part of the answer to your own prayer. This is where I get this from. Watch verse two. Uh, I'm sorry. Verse three. Go your way. Like you're the you pray for pray for the harvest, pray for workers for the harvest, and now you go and be the answer to your prayer. Behold, I'm sending you out like lambs in the midst of wolves. That's a pathetic picture. Like seriously, in your mind right now, just drew a cartoon drawing of a little lamb, and now a bunch of wolves all around it. It's pathetic. You are not going to read this advice on any book about how to win friends and influence people. This is not how to convince someone, oh, yeah, I want to be a lamb among wolves. This is not a petting zoo, this is a war zone. And when you start praying, Jesus, I want to pray for the lost, he's going to go, go, go. Yeah, just walk out there and listen to him growl. Why would you do that? Or maybe a better question is, how are we going to do that? Here's the answer. If you look at Matthew's rendition of this, I love what Matthew says right after this. It's the description of the 12 apostles. And he actually names the 12 apostles. And maybe you've never noticed this, but Jesus sent the apostles out in pairs. And Matthew, as he lists the 12 apostles, actually lists the pairs. Pay attention to the and in this passage. He called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. Well, it makes sense. Brothers go out in pairs. Then you got James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother, John. Philip and Bartholomew, what cracks me up is the very last pair. Look at that. Who would go with Simon the Zealot? Judas Iscariot. Now, there's a spunky pair for you. I want to hear their preaching. Be like hellfire and brimstone. If you're not reaching out in pairs to the lost, you will likely get eaten alive. And here's what I've noticed And I'm going to give you a formula. I cannot prove this scientifically. I just know it works sociologically. People do not come to Christ because of doctrine. They come to Christ because of relationship. And a one-on-one relationship may be effective, but a one-on-two relationship is far more effective. A one-on-three relationship is way more effective than that. So here's my formula. Take the number of people who are evangelizing a lost person, and multiply it by itself. So one times one is one. If you have two people, it's not twice as effective. It's four times more effective. Two times two is four. Three times three is nine. If you have four people reaching out to one lost person, you are 16 times more likely to bring them to Christ. Again, I cannot prove that with a study. I've just observed it in life because all of us are drawn to relationships. And rather than being surrounded by wolves, what if we surrounded a wolf with four sheep? Now we have a formula for success. Not only because that one person will feel more loved and more accepted and more included, but because you will hold each other accountable for the person that you're praying for. So for you hardliners that aren't gonna, you're not gonna take my advice, you're gonna gonna go ahead and pray for the lost, I'm just giving you this bit of advice. Do it in teams, and you should have at all times a list of five people that you're praying for. You may not be in relationship with them yet, but pray for opportunities to go to dinner, to have coffee, to take a vacation with some people that don't know Christ, and do it with others who will hold you accountable and include them in a circle of friendships. You know, one of the things that these last two years have done that is a huge, huge advantage to the church is that people are more isolated than they've ever felt. And what you have at this church, at your small group is so special, it is addictive. And people are literally dying to have what you have right now. Do it in teams. If you decide to do it, that, I'm, that's not my advice. Number three, it, for those of you who say, nope, you know what? The character of God, that's worth the risk to me. The heart of Jesus, that's worth the cost to me. If you're gonna do it, let me tell you a third prayer that you should pray. This comes from Acts chapter four. It is to pray for power. I'm so excited to teach this to you because I've never been able to teach this publicly before. Um, it, so I could be totally wrong, but here, here's what I'm thinking. Have you ever heard of an imprecatory prayer? Imprecatory prayer, big word, it simply means praying against your enemies. And you see it in the Psalms. Even King David would say, God, you know, smash their teeth or God break their legs. or I mean, it sounds like really awkward. You're reading it going, whoa, dude, like take some Prozac or something. But you're, you're reading these aggressive prayers against the enemies. Did you know that the imprecatory prayer has a formula to it? You can recognize the formula. The formula, you recognize formula of a, of a Western movie. Starts with, you know, a, a sunrise and a guy's riding into town, right? And somewhere along the line, there's going to be a shootout. Somewhere along the line, a damsel in distress. You get that, right? Chick flicks, they have the same formula. A, a boy meets a girl, they both hate each other, and you know they're going to fall in love. That's just the way chick flicks work. <laughs> when, you come, <laughs> when you come to an imprecatory prayer, you, there's a formula and I'm gonna tell you the formula. They start with recognizing who God is. God, you're the sovereign Lord. You're the king of the universe, so you praise God. And then you, you tell God what he said. God, you have spoken against evildoers. You, 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 have, you, you have said that there's a law of, of good and bad and right and wrong, and people who break the law will be punished. that's what you said. And then you'll read a word, either look or see. God, look at what they've done. See, see those people over there? These are the people that you talked about. So God, I know who you are. I know what you said. You see what they are? Now do something about it. Go get them, God. That, that's the formula for an imprecatory prayer. Now watch this formula play out in Acts 4. Now I need to set the scene. Peter and John go up to the temple to pray. And there's a guy who's a, who is a paraplegic. He's never walked. He's been there for decades and everybody knows him. And Peter and John heal him and he Suddenly, the lame man turns tigger. Just bouncy, 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 bouncy. Fun, 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 fun. He's bouncing around and everyone's going, I think that's the lame guy. And so they preach, they get a chance to preach to the crowd who are just fascinated with the healing. And they preach Jesus. And they get arrested for preaching Jesus. Problem is, there's no law against preaching in the name of Jesus until after they arrest them. And then they created a law. You can't preach in the name of Jesus. Now you go, that's not fair. Well, it kind of is, because they're the Sanhedrin, they're the Supreme Court of Israel, they can do that. So they, they have this law, and they tell Peter and John, if you guys preach in the name of Jesus anymore, we are going to flog you. Like that's a bad beating. Like a to the death beating, nearly. And and so Peter and John, <laughs> you should have been there. It was hilarious. They look at him and go, yeah, that's not gonna happen whether we obey God or men, like you have to decide for you, but we're going to obey God. Sorry, we will be back. And they go home to pray about it. And that's where the story picks up in chapter four. The prayer begins in verse 23, 23 and 24. It is the formula. It recognizes sovereign Lord. So your antenna goes up and goes, Oh, this could be an imprecatory prayer. Next thing he does, in verse 25, he quotes Psalm 2, which is a curse against those who reject God. So you got formula one, formula two, formula three. Listen to what Peter says in verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats. This is all the signs of an imprecatory prayer. What should come next? God, go get them. It's not what comes next. Read it for yourselves. Look on their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. Hold up, Peter. That's what got you arrested in the first place. You seriously asking God to continue to do what got you in trouble and now will get you flogged? What Peter is asking is that God will do to him what his enemies deserve. That is the heartbeat of Jesus. It's exactly what Jesus did for you. He took your, the punishment for your sin and he took it upon himself. When you as a follower of Christ begin to pray for the lost, just know that that implies you taking the suffering on you that they deserve. It will come in the cost of time, it will come in the cost of family, it will come in the cost of sacrifice for you, being rejected, being mocked. In our country, probably not being beaten, but there is a cost associated with it. So when Tyler asked me to ask you to pray for the lost, I just need to warn you, there's a cost involved. Are you willing to pay the cost of praying for the lost that will get you the character of God the heart of Jesus, and a model of Jesus' life. So my advice to you is be prepared to suffer so others won't have to. Prayer number four. I'm going to close with this one. And this may not sound uh, reasonable to you. You may not see the connection, but pray for leaders. Several times in the New Testament, we're given this mandate to pray for governing authorities. I'm going to be reading from 2 Timothy First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. That's all kinds of prayers, four different kinds of prayers. For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a life of peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. How, how is that praying for leaders? How is that praying for the lost? But listen to the next verse. This is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. When you pray for governing officials, school board members, mayors, city council people, when you pray for leaders, you are praying that they are successful in their careers to bring peace to your communities because the more peace there is, the broader the opportunity for you to share Christ. That's the thought behind this prayer. What I've noticed, and I think it's worse now than it's ever been, is that asking you to pray for your leaders is asking you to pray for your enemies. Because we treat our leaders as if they are our enemies. The last three presidents I've heard people say, so this catches everybody, The last three presidents, I've heard the same thing. He's not my president. He's not my president. He's not my president. If you're an American, he is your president. And more to the point, he's God's president because God moves kings like pawns on a chessboard. And if you don't believe that, then we have a problem because you are denying the sovereignty of God in national leaders. He is God's president, and if he's God's president, you pray for him. Now, I know that irritates some of you, and honestly, I don't care. (laughs) Because if you care for the lost, you pray for your leaders. So I just want to challenge you with this. Do this little exercise. You don't have to confess it to anybody, but just in your own mind, stack up all your complaints against the past three presidents. Stack them up. Stack them up. Is it two stories high, three stories? Some of you, like, you've got a skyscraper. Okay, now stack up the prayers that you prayed for the last three presidents. How many times have you prayed for God's leaders? Multiple times the New Testament commands you to do that, not because you like your leaders, but because you love the lost. And if you're serious about this prayer, you're gonna have to minimize this stack and maximize the prayers for leaders because their success will lead to peace that leads to the spread of the gospel. I I know you don't like that. And you may be saying, well, but they don't know our president. They don't know our past president, whatever president you have a preference for. Let me just tell you, who the president was when Paul prayed this. He was called a Caesar or an emperor, and his name was Nero. Nero was the worst of all the emperors ever. He was responsible for the first persecution of Christians at the federal government level. He was responsible for the death of the Apostle Peter by hanging him upside down. He was responsible for the death of the Apostle Paul by beheading him. So do not tell me that you cannot pray for your leader when the Apostle Paul, who was martyred by this man, told us to pray for him. That's our mandate. And so my challenge to you is to talk to God about leaders more than you complain to leaders about others. That's the challenge. In fact, let me lay another challenge. This is for the whole message, not just this fourth prayer, to talk to God about your neighbor so that you can talk to your neighbor about God. This is not for everyone. For those of you who want to stay on the sideline, do not pray this prayer. For those of you that the heart of God is not worth it to you to pay the price to do this, this is, of all the prayers you can pray, the one that will cost you the most. I just want to warn you about that. And I want to close by doing what the Bible said to pray for leaders, but not just all of our leaders, international leaders, but one leader in particular. And I want to read a snippet from something that Paul wrote in the letter of Ephesians. Paul, you know, is a bit of a bulldog, right? Like he was pretty aggressive when it came to evangelism. (laughs) Here's what Paul says. In in Ephesians 6, it's all about the armament of God, like a very testosterone-driven passage. you know, the armament, the shield of faith, and the sword of the spirit, and the helmet of salvation. And then he ends up, and you hear people say that the sword of the spirit, the word of God, is the only offensive weapon, Is not. There's another weapon, the second weapon. It's not called a weapon, it's not called armament, but in the flow of the passage, it clearly is an offensive weapon, and it is prayer. It is prayer. Praying at all times, verse 18, in the spirit, with all prayer and supplication, to that end, Keep alert. With all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Again, four different kinds of prayer. And then he says, Paul, the bulldog evangelist says, pray also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of God. Now, who had ever thought Paul needed prayer to be bold? I thought he was always bold. No. None of us are always bold. None of us are always courageous. He goes on, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Paul is asking for you to pray for him because he needed to be bolder than he felt like being. As I've talked to pastors around the country, even the most bold and brave and courageous have been hit pretty hard. Now, don't feel sorry for them. Like if you're a CEO, you've been through the same thing. If you're a public school teacher, you've been through the same thing. If you're a business owner, you, you've been through just as much difficulty as any other leaders. But your leader here at this church, Tyler McKenzie, has been through the ringer. And you may not see it because he's a bulldog. He is, and I want to tell you what I, when he's not in the room, here's what I say about him. He is one of the most aggressive, intuitive And I think prospective leaders of our tribe of churches in the country. 30 years from now, he will be one of a handful of leaders that are directing churches around the country. I am really proud of him. And he needs your prayer. He needs your prayer now more than ever that he would be bulldog bold going forward in the future. You can only get gut punched so many times before you begin to back off. And we cannot afford to have our pastor back off of the vision that God has put on him. So I wanna lead us all in prayer now for our pastor. Holy Father, these, these are difficult days. Compared to other seasons of history, I suppose we have it good, but for us in our lifetimes, These have been difficult days, and leaders of all stripe and all sizes have been been facing challenges, internal and external, and we want to pray right now for Tyler. Very specifically, we want to pray that he would be bold, that the words he speak would come from you that the courage he has would come directly from you, that you would lead him with your Holy Spirit as if your Holy Spirit is escorting him through the halls of this church. Lord, would you surround him with men and women of utmost integrity? Would you have his accountability partners hold his feet to the fire for the call that you put on him for this place? Would you give him the right encouragers, the Barnabases who would not only encourage him personally, but throw blocks for him to run with the ball down the field, would you give him your heart and give him your character so that as he leads out in praying for the lost and leading the lost to Christ, that we would be able to follow his example. And we pray this all in our ultimate example of Jesus Christ our Lord, amen.